0: what's out there right now keeping us moving forward keeping this community together so thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's gonna support we appreciate it hey all we've got a short today one that i really love about a truly epic journey through an incredible landscape and we also have a little preview of a project we've been doing over on the Dirtbag Diaries Plus alongside our listeners there. If you haven't heard, we, earlier this year, launched a subscription-based service for those who like a little bit more type 2 fun in their lives, who want a little bit more of the show. Subscribers get ad-free episodes, in-depth interviews, campfire chats, and an ongoing series of Ask Me Anythings, which the team and I have been responding to. The hotline is open and we've been taking calls. Dear Beggars, my name is Leslie and I'm calling from Eugene, Oregon, and I have an Ask Me Another question. How do you market your outdoor skills and experiences in job interviews or resumes, especially for those humdrum office jobs that may not need you to be a beast on the rocks or the slopes? Thanks. First off, that is a terrible idea. Don't tell them that. Don't, don't let them know that you're an outdoors person. Seriously, if you get an interview and they ask about your hobbies, tell them you are passionate about work and occasionally TV, but mostly work and sometimes online shopping. Because look, I think the previous generation of reliably employed dirtbags may have ruined it for you. HR is on to us. Look at it from the employer's perspective. Like when there's 12 inches of fresh at the mountain, do they want you calling in with a mysterious flu? And how long before... They catch on that you actually don't go to the dentist 20 times a year. And in fact, you just ran a little late because you went mountain biking that morning. Seriously, while we all know that our experiences in the outdoors are powerful moments that can prepare us to be calm, cool, and collected when proverbial shit hits the fan, I'm not totally sure that corporate America knows or cares about that reality. Plus, if you keep it a secret when you show up to work on Mondays with your hands all beat up and a wild look in your eyes and you've got the calmness around the water cooler, your boss will never know if he's dealing with a dirt bag or a covert operative. That'd be pretty cool. All right,
1: next question. Hey, Diaries team. This is Kevin Works from North Bend, Washington with a question for you. We all know about the 10 essentials, but what is your 11th essential?
0: Coffee. I'm... That's definitely my 11th essential, although I'm not even sure I can name the 10 essentials. Uh, but I'm, I'm 100% willing to guess that they do not put coffee on that list. Um, okay, here I go. What are they? They would be a map, fire, like a space blanket, water, food, layer, layers, rain jacket. I don't even know what I'm up. Anyway. Oh, uh, headlamp and first aid kit. And I think I'm missing one. But I have to say, there have definitely been trips in the last year where I have not brought a tent or a space blanket. And I've definitely bought coffee. So, I don't know. Like, tent, coffee. I don't know. There's this thing called the weather forecast. Check it. So, my 11th is definitely coffee. Also, the likelihood that I need first aid definitely goes up. If I am not caffeinated.
1: Hi, Fitz. It's Thaddeus from New to New York. I love what the Dirtbag Diaries is, and will forever be thankful for what it has given me. The knowing that I'm part of a community that is much larger than me. Something that I've wondered about, and would love to hear about in a future episode, is what is your vision for the future final form of the Dirtbag Diaries? What happens to the Dirtbag Diaries when you want to retire? How does this project stay alive at infinitum, or will there someday be an end to the Dirtbag Diaries? I realize this is probably a very hard question to answer, because the answer now could change in the future, but I am interested in your thoughts on this, rather than having to anticipate the event. Thanks for all your hard work. Well, first
0: off, Thad, let me say, I've been insanely grateful for the last 17 years, and I think it would have been super hard for me to even imagine when I was 27 years old, when I started the show, or 28 years old maybe, where it was going to take me after those first few episodes. And I didn't really have much of a plan besides maybe doing five of them. You know, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. It's obviously very hard to predict the future. But there also comes a point where you realize you have to work towards a version of the future you want to see, a version of yourself you want to be, which is really what a lot of the Dirtbag Diaries is about. I do know there is a version where we don't evolve, where we do the same thing over and over, and we don't go to bat for the things we care about. And slowly, you know, if you take that route, we know that slowly the show and the community it just sort of goes away, sort of disintegrates into thin air. And I can see that version of that, and I don't want that. I want the diaries to be here for those who need it, who need a connection to the outdoors, even if it's not possible every day, who maybe need a little nudge to chase the things they've been daydreaming about, because that's kind of what this show, what all of you have done for me. That's what you've helped this entire team do. You know, right now, there are about 110,000 people who listen to this show, and that is freaking rad. Thank you so much. Thad, Leslie, and Kevin are some of the 500 listeners who have stepped up to become Diaries Plus members. They said, hey, look, I care about this project, I want other people to hear it. I want to sustain it. I want to keep it going because I believe in this community. I believe in the power of the outdoors to provide meaning and purpose. And, you know, on top of it, they get extra shows, campfire conversations, and interviews all ad-free. But it's bigger than that, though, right? You're sustaining it. They're giving a little nudge to people to get out there and try challenging things because that's what we're doing as a team, right? And we want to instigate a new generation of adventures. You talk about like whether or not I'm going to retire, what's going to happen to the show, and I'm like, man, I'm not even thinking that far ahead. I'm thinking five years from now, can we keep doing this? I'm thinking three years from now, can we keep doing this? And, and I don't know the answer to that, but I know that you all have a role to play in it. If we care about something, we need to support it. And that's why I'm out here asking you right now. I understand everyone can't do it. I get it. That's totally fair. But some of you do. And... If you think about it, a thing of electrolytes at the grocery store to put in your water bottle costs more than $5 right now. I think there's a thousand of you out there right now that could step up and do this and help us and allow us to give us a little extra support so that we can start daydreaming. We can think about how the show evolves. We don't totally know what the future holds, and that's awesome. We get to think about it. We get to say, could we create live events? Could we create more deep dive multi-part stories? And I think you might be one of those thousand peoples. At times in the last two decades, there have been moments where the diary survival felt slightly tenuous. So in my my mind, I have had to accept that the diaries might go away. But if we do this together, I think the diaries could last for 20. And that will power and fuel another 20 years of stories, memories, inspiration, and adventure. So that's my hope, that in If I get to retire doing this, that would be pretty cool. But by the time that happens, I think I will be surrounded by incredible voices who can keep it going. You know, that's my vision. And I'm asking you to help me do that. So check out the link. It's in the show notes below. Consider it. Can you be one of those thousand people that keeps this project going? All right. Now for an incredible adventure.
1: Early July of 2008, I was poised to travel north to Arctic Canada, into a vast sweep of tundra known as the Barren Lands. This region is home to large migratory herds of caribou, and I dearly wish to witness their thousand-strong biannual migration. Migrating from their wintering grounds in the northern boreal forest to their calving grounds on the Arctic tundra, the massive herds are one of North America's greatest wildlife spectacles. I was hoping for intimate encounters with these Arctic nomads, but I did not expect to find myself face down in a heap of their droppings. But now I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. In Yellowknife, the capital city of the Northwest Territories, I squeezed myself and all my gear into a small yellow float plane with my red canoe strapped to one pontoon. The plain, small interior was stuffed with waterproof packs of food, clothes, cameras, paddles, maps, and a little flask of Southern Comfort whiskey gifted to me by some friends back home. After two other long Arctic expeditions with friends, I chose to travel alone this time because I was curious about what an extended period of solitude would be like. I also wanted to indulge my fascination with caribou and maybe roam around with them a bit, if I could find any. The pilot flew me 300 miles northeast of Yellowknife over a dazzling expanse of boreal forest dotted with endless lakes and sparkling rivers. As we flew further north, the scrubby trees gave way to tundra and some of the lakes were still frozen. After two hours, the pontoon slapped down near the headwaters of the Bailey River. Twenty minutes later, the plane was a speck on the horizon and I was all alone. The great silence engulfed me. The air was sweet and crisp in my nostrils. When I set up my tent on a little beach, I found caribou tracks in the sand. I was tired after weeks of late-night preparations. But at that moment, my fatigue faded away and I was simply elated to finally be here, to have the entire summer ahead to explore this remarkable place. Whoever dubbed this place the Barrenlands must have been a jet pilot. From way up there, the contours of the tundra become flattened, the colors diminished, and the sounds and smells muted, compressing a sensory carnival into a dull, flat pane. You cannot truly experience the Arctic from 30,000 feet. You need to get your feet on the ground. With my boots planted here again, my curiosity took over, and I wandered Esker Ridges late into the Arctic night, rediscovering the tundra. It stretched out before me like a giant tapestry, woven with rich threads of color and texture, Strands of blue water, amber seams of sand, colorful swatches of flowers, the green flush of spring—each thread intimately unified with the others and punctuated with the tracks of wolves, muskoxen, grizzlies, and, of course, caribou. The rolling terrain and massive expanse of the barren lands overwhelmed my senses at first. Walking around, the sweet fragrance of lavador tea crushed underfoot, the songs of white-crowned sparrows, and the pure vastness of the country— were all intoxicating. Climbing to a hilltop, I encountered an immense sky arcing overhead, matched by vast reaches of tundra sweeping towards a horizon impossibly far away. Yet a place this big is full of surprises if you poke around a bit. A copse of tree growing a hundred miles north of treeline. Wolves and foxes raising their pups side by side in the same den. On the second morning of my trip, I walked along in Esker and discovered a perfectly shaped stone arrowhead lying in the sand. Perhaps hundreds of years old, it looked like it had just been placed there that day. I suppose it was the sheer wildness of the place and the little surprises it can hold that had lured me back again. I saw my first caribou of the trip on day four. No land-dwelling mammal on earth travels more than caribou, and they have evolved one of the most efficient gaits in the animal kingdom. I watched the caribou glide past with perfectly fluid strides, knees high like a horse on a carousel. I scanned the hillsides, but I I didn't see any more. I was tired from a day of paddling, so I made camp, ate dinner, and crawled into my tent. But before I fell asleep, wolves began to howl in the distance and I lay alert, listening until the chorus faded away. The next morning, the pattering on the tent might have been peaceful if I didn't know any better. It was not the soothing sound of gentle rain, but thousands of black flies pinging off the nylon. I knew this moment would come. Black flies are ubiquitous during summer on the tundra, and overnight the conditions became perfect for the hatch. When I emerged from my tent, I got mauled. I ate breakfast while simultaneously being eaten, and I came up with a new collective noun, like a murder of crows or a pack of wolves. This was an atrocity of black flies. These tiny insects are the embodiment of persistence, a flying, crawling, biting nightmare that renders skin into a wasteland of crusty scabs and welts. With so many bites on my face, one of my eyes nearly swelled shut. Many of the marauders ended up in my breakfast bowl, swimming helplessly in the milky granola. So I bit back, popping them between my teeth. It felt like sweet vengeance. But impossibly, they tasted like raspberries.
0: After the break, upriver paddling, portaging, and caribou. More in a minute. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at Ketone.com. Backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out.
1: The late Harvard biologist E. O. Wilson coined and popularized the term biophilia and defined it as the human urge to affiliate with other forms of life. The idea is that people have an innate attraction to the natural world. In Wilson's view, This attraction is refined through experience and culture, but is fundamentally a product of biological evolution. The biophilia hypothesis may help explain why people crave getaways to summer cottages or to the proverbial tropical island paradise. It may also explain why children's books are filled with animals, why nearly half of North Americans have pets and houseplants, and why American zoos have greater annual attendance than the NFL, NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball combined. If asked to explain my acute desire to experience a caribou migration in my lifetime, I would not confess to a biophilic attraction to the life force of these animals. But I don't really have a better explanation. The biophilia hypothesis is a compelling idea, but it also has its limitations. While I imagine it makes perfect sense from the venerated offices of Harvard Sometimes I wondered how biophilic Wilson would have felt during an outdoor bowel movement in the middle of a blizzard of black flies. Out on the water after packing up camp, I dug my paddle into the swirling current, aiming for a downstream V. I pulled hard to put distance between me and the atrocity on my tail, and relished a smack of icy water on my swollen face as my boat exploded through a stack of standing waves. When in the wrong frame of mind, I could find evidence of hardship everywhere in the Arctic, the first clue was the lack of trees. It's just too cold. And then there are the bones. Scattered across the landscape, they decompose slowly in the deep freeze of the north. A rib here. A jawbone there. Discarded antlers that are chewed by rodents and caribou alike for the rich source of minerals. I caught myself wondering if the caribou are unnerved, traipsing over the remains of their kin during their annual migrations. Several days after the blackflies emerged, I portaged around a nasty, boat-eating rapid and discovered the spout of a kettle and a rusty old tin of tobacco. Further on, I spotted a ptarmigan sitting on a pile of rocks, its nasal voice the only sound in the chilly air. When I approached, the bird flushed with a thump and flash of white feathers. I noticed it was perched on a rock cairn crusted with lichens, the kind Sir John Franklin called tripe de roche and was forced to eat while starving on his tragic expedition of 1819 to 1822. On that trip, 11 of his 22 men died on their return trek, succumbing to starvation and murder. Peeking through the cracks between the rocks, I saw more bones. Human bones. Whether Inuit or European, I don't know. But the skull was missing, dragged off by a scavenger or looted by other travelers, I suppose. Amidst the short burst of summer life in the Arctic, the profusion of migrating birds and caribou, the sudden blaze of wildflowers, death is on permanent display here. The new growth of each season pushes up amidst the feces, bones, refuse, and rock piles of the past. After two weeks, my canoe cut into the dark water where the bailey empties itself into the back river. I stood at the confluence of these great northern waterways eating cheese and bannock. Squinting at the sunlight reflecting off the racing water, I contemplated my plan to travel up the back river before portaging to the western river, which I planned to follow to the Arctic coast. What made me think it would be a good idea to travel against the current of this powerful river by myself? It seemed simple enough while poring over maps from the comfort of home, but now that I was all alone with the back river lapping at my toes, I was not so sure. The bugs harassed me as I toiled upstream. I struggled against the current, alternatively paddling, hauling my canoe upstream with ropes, and poling gondola style with a wooden pole I brought specifically for this purpose. It was like keeping up with a racing treadmill with no off button. My muscles ached, the bugs swarmed, and my biophilic attraction to this place wore thin. Retreating to the riverbank, I sat down for a rest and became aware of the niggling sense of vulnerability that I'd been carrying around with me. It was a subtle thing, quietly menacing in the back of my mind, rearing its head during quiet moments when I imagined myself slipping on a rock, snapping my leg, and watching helplessly as my canoe, food, and gear drifted downstream and out of sight. And then, a miracle. Overnight, the temperature plummeted to 30 degrees, killing the black flies. Even better, I finished the upstream leg of my journey and paddled over glassy, calm waters on Beachy Lake. Without the whine of insects, I heard only paddle strokes and the echoing wails of yellow-billed loons. Several muskoxen grazed as I paddled past, raising their heads to acknowledge me, but going about their own business. Rested and well-fed by an approximation of a chocolate cake I made as a treat, I felt recharged. Which was good, because my portage to the Western River, the one I planned in comfort back at home, would take me three days. was the units that were getting to me. Where I come from, portages are measured in terms of yards, not days. To say I felt apprehensive about this challenge was a substantial understatement. But soon into the portage, I encountered evidence of caribou, well-worn trails, fresh tracks, and tufts of fur snagged on shrubs. My apprehension morphed into excitement and anticipation. Caribou were close. I found my stride. Carrying heavy loads, I became amazed at what my body could accomplish. After weeks on the move in the wild, I realized the dull back pain that was a chronic companion at my desk back home was gone. Lifting heavy packs and hoisting the canoe onto my shoulders had become easier. I felt strong, like I could accomplish anything. Then the toe of my boot caught on a rock and threw me off balance. The momentum from my heavy pack took over and I crashed to the ground. Pinned there by the weight of my load, directly in a heap of caribou crap. With my pack wedged firmly between some boulders, and my nose hovering a couple inches above the scat, I couldn't move. The weight on my back compressed my lungs and I began to wheeze and laugh simultaneously. I imagined the headlines when they found my remains. Caribou dropping, suspected in man's death, or fatal fecal folly. That didn't help. Now I was in hysterics laughing out loud by myself in the middle of the Arctic. When I managed to extricate myself from my back and sit up, I realized I was being watched. Ten caribou were staring at me, hind legs extended in their alarm posture, and for a fleeting moment I felt slightly embarrassed. As I portaged back and forth on my own migration, my trepidation about this portage was replaced by glee at the pure absurdity of the challenge. Who plans a route with a three-day portage? But maybe it was the caribou that buoyed me up. I portaged among them, walking in their trails, deep grooves worn into the land by generations of migrating animals. From inside my tent, I could hear their hooves clacking on the rocks as they walked past. Unzipping the tent door, I watched velvety antlers and long, skinny legs moving past. Hundreds of ankle tendons clicked in unison, evoking the sound of rustling leaves. Hooves pressed mud into a quagmire of tracks. While making breakfast one morning, two wolves breezed right through my camp. They gave me a disinterested glance without breaking stride, and, intent on the scent of caribou, they carried on. After that, I saw caribou every day for two weeks. Some days there were just a few. Other times I lost count in the hundreds or thousands. The young calves chased each other in wide circles on their springy new legs. It all made something twinge inside. Maybe it was the biophilic murmurings of my evolutionary past. I don't know. But it felt good. And as the end of the trip approached, I realized how enlivened I felt. How patient, strong, and renewed I had become. That is when I realized that biophilia might not only be about experiencing the high points of nature, but of being part of the whole messy picture of life on Earth. And I think E.O. Wilson would have been pleased to know I had arrived at that place. Even if I had to roll around in some poop... To get there. My name is Tim Irvin, and this is my short.
0: Thank you, Tim, for sharing your story. It's an adaptation of an essay that Tim wrote while at Banff Center's mountain and wilderness writing residency it's an incredible program one that i did back in the day and if you got a second check it out our stories come from friends from friends of friends and from you our community our shorts applications are actually open right now so if you have a compelling idea check out the submission form on our website music today from jacob bain and nice Vesper vespertines serene sloth and drexler the tracks are courtesy of the artists or track club. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Andrew Burton and Lauren Delaney Miller, with additional production help from Ashley Langholt and Becca Call. Our work by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz. And you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.